The Gist is brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. Buy any five bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free and receive free shipping. Just go to chwine.com and enter the promo code GIST at checkout. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Former Speaker of the New York State Assembly, Sheldon Silva, was sentenced today for flouting the laws he once crafted. Well, actually, to be fair, he didn't write many political ethics statutes. Now, you know how some judges go in for creative sentencing, like you stole a toaster, so the judge says you got to wear a sandwich sign that says, I am a toaster stealer? Actually, that is remarkably uncreative when you think about it. Lex talionis on lettuce with rye. But a really creative judge, I think, if I were a creative judge sentencing Sheldon Silver, I'd sentence him to the crime of having to hear his sentence in the Sheldon Silver voice and cadence. Let's refresh. What really happened here, and I, you know, will readily say we made mistakes along the way, and the confidentiality was a mistake, and the fact that the ethics panel did not... Mr. Silva, you have repeatedly violated the law when you were the one who was sworn to uphold it. But the maximum sentence is 15 years, and at that pace, it would be a life sentence. Which leads me to my epidemiological discovery. I seem to have uncovered a trend in corrupt politicians. Sheldon Silver, it was revealed, has prostate cancer. I'm not poking fun at this. But his wife pleaded with the judge for leniency on the basis of her husband's ailment. Silver's wife, Rosa, submitted a letter to Judge Valerie Caproni saying, quote, Your Honor is aware of Shelley's health issues, and it terrifies me that his father and brother both died from the same kind of cancer. Please give him as lenient a sentence as possible. And that put me in the mind of last week's sentencing of a leader of a lower legislative body. Former Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert arrived at Chicago's federal courthouse today in a wheelchair. His lawyers argued that his poor health should keep him out of prison. It did not. Hastert, convicted of paying bribes to cover up his acts of pedophilia, was sentenced to 15 months. But I think we are on our way to establishing a connection. Corrupt politician leads to bodily corruption. Politicians will explain their transgressions by pleading human frailty. But then, come sentencing, they emphasize their literal frailty. Perhaps the corruption rots from within. Perhaps it's just that actuarial tables say that men in their 70s have health ailments. But it is good to see that judges in these cases were not overly swayed. Hastert's prosecutors recommended only six months. He got 15. And the judge in New York sentenced Sheldon Silver to 12 years in jail. On the show today, I spiel about the endorsement that certainly will not knock out Donald Trump's nomination chances. But first, if Trump is a cartoon billionaire leveraging his TV persona to run for office, Bob Morazic was an actual congressman who is now out with a movie, a feature film which he wrote and co-directs. Its title, like Morazic's old honorific, is The Congressman. So in the history of Congress, there have been a number of actors who've become members of Congress. There was Fred Grandy, you know, gopher from Love Boat. There was Al Franken, uh, Helen Gagan Douglas. And then, of course, there were the governors of California, like Schwarzenegger and Reagan. But what about the other way? What about people in Congress who then go into the movies? I could think of one. He's my guest. Robert Morazic uh, served 
Long Island's third congressional district, narrowly avoiding representing me. I was a South Shore Long Island guy. He represented the North Shore. And uh, he's been an author since. And now he is the writer and co-director of a movie called The Congressman, starring Treat Williams as a congressman. I think a little like Bob Morazic during uh, the end of his tenure. Am I getting that slightly right? Well, I think a lot of members of Congress get somewhat disenchanted or disillusioned with the way things work in Washington. Uh, I don't think a lot has changed since uh, Frank Capra made Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So, yeah, I, I announced when I was elected the fifth time that I wouldn't run for re-election to the House. And I felt I'd done some good things, but I had children who were 11 and 13, and I didn't want to be on the fundraising circuit and all of that. You serve from 82 to 92? That's correct. Okay. And so at the end is when Gingrich came in and he really changed things. And I think his tactics, his scorch earthed tactics specifically affected you. He became speaker in 1994. And I would say that the culture really began to change in terms of the ability to work together, Democrats and Republicans. In the 10 years I was there, I worked with dozens of Republicans on important issues that we could find common ground on, whether it was the Amerasian Homecoming Act that I did with Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania and John McCain, or budget issues with John Kasich. That culture has changed entirely, which is one of the inspirations for my film. They can't work together at all now. They hate one another. And there's no service for the common good. Yes. And it's terrible. And, and and the reason I said that, you know, his scorched earth affected you specifically in this movie, Treat Williams, Congressman, uh, puts his feet up on his desk during the Pledge of Allegiance, and this becomes a cause. Right-wing media jumps on it. His opponent jumps on it. Someone took a video of you with your feet up on the whip's desk while everyone else is standing and saluting the flag, like the few and the proud. Yeah, well, as one of the few and the proud, let me tell you that none of us recited the pledge every morning when we were holding Khe against the communist hordes. Fine. You want to play the cynical Vietnam warrior? That's fine. I like that card. But I'm telling you, they care about this shit back in the district. I am not going to recite a loyalty oath every morning just to prove that I love my country. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that's fine, Charlie. But they're already calling you a pledge dodger. As you know, the uh, precipitating event for you leaving, or you could tell me if you decided to leave, was this check cashing or check bouncing scandal. But I don't know if people even vaguely remember this. It was so, it was pretty much misreported and ginned up by Newt Gingrich. Um, it was misreported to the extent where you never stole any money and you were allowed to essentially like a credit card, take money from the bank and then make good on it by the time you got your next paycheck. And yet the way Gingrich went to the floor of Congress and his acolytes, it really made it seem like you were stealing from the government. Well, it was, it was the mouse that roared scandal yeah. in Washington, if you want to call it that. Yeah, only members, only members' money was in the bank. No interest was paid on our deposits. Uh, interest was not charged on overdrafts, meaning your constitutionally guaranteed salary for two years that you can draw on that comes in at the end of the month. But yeah, Newt, Newt did that very wisely and smartly, uh, even though his chief lieutenants had Hundreds of overdrafts, like Vin Weber of of Minnesota, and and Duncan Hunter, and many others. But he was looking for the greater cause of getting a, a Republican majority in Congress, and he got it two years later. But I, I had announced again that I was going to retire uh, at the end of ten years from the House. I, I tried. Uh, I contemplated a Senate race, and 
you know, the issue at that time, because there are hundreds of, 375 members had overdrafts out of 435. Right. And, if, you know, and, and as you suggest, I think it was highly exaggerated in the way it was reported. The one thing about this movie, it's an hour and a half movie and it has to be tight. And I think the villains are a little, well, just as in real life, they're a little mustache twirly and perhaps broad, overly broad. And I do think, not that, not that, you know, if you watch Fox News, you'll get a lot of subtlety. But I do think um, (laughs) if you would turn this into, say, a 10 uh, episode HBO type uh, docu feature, there could be room to explore and plumb the depths of their motivation. And I think, though, Newt Gingrich hurt the Republic, I think his tactics, in a way, at least in the short term, might have been wise. And, you know, there's something about game theory that says if you can't win on the issues, if you just destroy the reputation of the institution, maybe you could make some hay. That's exactly right. And a very wise and intuitive statement, as far as I'm concerned. The House of Representatives is held in a lot of disrepute. And, uh, you know, we're bringing up a film called The Congressman at a time when the institution is so disdained, if not reviled. <laughs> so who knows if people are going to pay to come out and see it. But our movie is a feel-good movie. It's lighthearted. It's for grown-ups. It, it hopefully makes you think without telling you how to think about issues like what it means to be an American. And uh, we're very proud of it. George Hamilton, yes, you're right about the corrupt people who are in the movie, it's within a 90-minute framework. It's hard to provide the subtlety that you can in a in a television series. But George is brilliant as a, as a corrupt lobbyist. I mean, he is a smiling barracuda and reminiscent to me of, of people like Jack Abramoff and others who, uh, you know, are playing pre- a golf with the president uh, in the morning and screwing the country over the same afternoon. Were there elements in this movie that you were happy to put in because movies always or almost always get them wrong about Congress, even a little detail here or there? Yeah, I think this is really an insider's peek behind the curtain of what it's like to be in public life, of, uh, you know, what happens in the house gym between members playing basketball who whose egos are on the line and yeah. have sharp elbows. Everyone's an alpha in that pickup game. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I, I was in the house. I play, they called it the House Basketball Caucus. There were about 10, 12 of us who played every afternoon when we were in session. And uh, nobody nobody knew how to pass the ball. Everybody just got the ball and tried to shoot. <laughs> how could you pass legislation if you can't pass the ball? <laughs> well, that's a good point. That's a good point. In your day, who was a good basketball player in the Basketball Caucus? Well, uh, there were a number of shooters, guys who had played college basketball. John Kasich was a very good basketball player. Really? Probably still is. He's an athlete. The average age of Congress is much higher than the average age of the American workplace, especially in the Senate, which also has six-year terms. But is burnout a big problem, more so than it's just a tough job? I would also suspect that unlike private business, there are people there who are propping you up and making you run or, you know, almost doing your job for you because you're the brand. Is this a worse problem than even the person who pays attention to politics might know? Well, I don't know how one can can stay there from the standpoint of someone with my personality, uh, how someone can stay there for 25, 35, 45 years. When I joined, I became the fourth new member of Congress uh, to, to get on the Appropriations Committee, which is a very powerful committee. And I remember looking up at the dais of the 
College of Cardinals, as they called them, the chairman of the uh, subcommittees on the Appropriations Committee. They were all men. They'd all been there at least 40 years. Our chairman, Jamie Witten of Mississippi, had been sitting in the House of Representatives when Franklin Delano Roosevelt asked for a declaration of war against the Japanese in December of 1941. They went on forever, and they were very powerful, and they enjoyed their prerogatives, but they were, you know, entrenched in their own particular attitudes. I I knew uh, that wasn't going to be a career for me. But a lot of members of Congress do end up going through the motions. And it's sad because, you know, you want vibrancy there. You want people who are mentally active. And the other challenge now is you've got so many ideologues who aren't pragmatic, who don't want to come together to work. They are intellectually pure with their so-called ideals. And that's not the way a legislature is supposed to work. You're supposed to come together in the cause of the common good. And so I guess my last question before we started to do this interview, we chatted and you said you were filming in the uh, uh, Augusta State Capitol there in Maine. Is there any optimism to be had, if not in the federal legislature, on the state level, on the local level? It's great that you have this second or maybe third career. You have this outlet. You are a novelist. You're getting satisfaction from your life. But, you know, what optimism can be had for the citizen who wants a little bit better government? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that as Americans have dialed out or tuned out this chorus of dysfunction uh, at a congressional level, at a federal level, uh, they simply decide, I'm not going to vote anymore. Why bother to vote? We get the same thing handed to us every two years. And as they bail out of the system, the vacuum is filled by people who are, again, ideological purists uh, at both ends of the spectrum. This is not a just a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. At a state level, I, I think it's more traditional, where you do have... Uh, more collegiality, where Democrats and Republicans can work together. They don't hate one another. They realize there are certain things they have to be able to do at the local level just in order to function and and for their town or their county or their state legislature to to be able to deliver things that are important to people. Uh, I'm optimistic by nature, and my hope is that we will regain our bearings in Washington at some point. But it's hard to stay optimistic considering what we're looking at. Bob Mazarek is a former congressman and is the writer, co-director of the current feature film, The Congressman, starring Treat Williams. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a great interview. I really appreciate it. CH Wine's the name of our company. It's the name of the website I'm talking about. But CH stands for someone, Cameron Hughes. And I talked to Cameron Hughes, and this is what he does. He goes to the great vineyards of Napa Valley and Sonoma, and he buys up really good wines. It's just wine that those particular vineyards don't market under the label of those particular vineyards. Why? They might be wanting to create a blend, and they had some excess. They might want to hold some wine back from market just to make their wine seem more exclusive. But he gets great-tasting wine, wine that scores above a 90 rate by Wine Spectator. Normally, that kind of bottle of wine sells for $155. When Cameron Hughes sells it, it's for $30 a bottle. So we're talking great quality and a great price and a great deal right now. Buy any five bottles of wine and you get one bottle of Pinot Noir free, courtesy of me. Pinot Noir. 
and five bottles will get you free shipping. It'll actually be six bottles because we're giving you the free bottle of Pinot Noir. Where else are you going to get free Pinot Noir? 25 buck value and free shipping, but chwine.com. You go to chwine.com and you use the code GIST at checkout. Shop for your wine, any five bottles you want, and enter my code GIST at checkout. That's right, GIST at checkout. Receive a free Pinot Noir for being a GIST listener who writes GIST at checkout. You got to do both things and you get free shipping. Supplies are limited. Cameron's wines sell out fast. So I would encourage you to go online to chwine.com and get this deal today. And now the spiel. Thanks, Mr. Trump. In an op-ed today in the New York Times, Jill Filipovich writes about the importance of electing women to higher office. In the U.S., 20 of 100 senators are women. I checked. That is less than their percentage in the overall population. I also checked which countries have the most women in their legislators. Scandinavia does well. So does Sub-Saharan Africa, by the way. Though, good parliamentary trivia, can you name the only two countries with majority female legislatures? If you said Rwanda or Bolivia, you either Googled it or are currently serving in La Asamblea Legislativa Plurinacional. Belgium, by the way, has a 30-30 man-woman split in its upper legislative body. The United States, by the way, is ranked 95th in the world below Saudi Arabia. Eh, Saudi Arabia has been allowing women to vote since December, so they got some momentum on this. There's also a 20% quota, so that explains some things. Here's some of Filipovich's arguments. Quote, there is evidence that female politicians are more effective than male ones, bringing more money to their home districts and getting more co-sponsorships for legislation. Let's pause to say, I don't know that those two things correlate to effectiveness, but okay, so far as it goes. She goes on to say, a female legislator may be more likely to see contraception access as an economic and health issue rather than a moral one. Okay, fair enough. She also says this, A female candidate, for example, may be less inclined to enthusiastically accept an endorsement from a convicted rapist as Mr. Trump did last week. Now, just about every politician not named Donald Trump is not that enthusiastic to accept an endorsement from a convicted rapist. I don't know if this reflects on men not named Donald Trump, but about that. So in this issue, we have agreement between Jill Filipovich former editor of Feminist Magazine, and the Republican candidate who does not believe in any form of legalized abortion without exception. On the other side, Donald Trump was proudly trumpeting the support of Mike Tyson, a convicted rapist who served three years in prison here in Indiana for rape. A convicted rapist convicted for rape, which Cruz decries. Though if Mike Tyson's victim became pregnant, Ted Cruz dreams of an America where she would be forced to carry his baby to term. But this is not about Ted Cruz. This is an argument that I've heard in a few places that Donald Trump should be running away from Mike Tyson's endorsement. Here on ABC's This Week, guest host Martha Raddatz asked a Trump surrogate about the Tyson endorsement. A pro-Cruz super PAC has released an ad about Trump's support of boxer Mike Tyson, who was convicted of rape in 1992 and served three years in prison. One of the leaders of the effort to keep Tyson out of prison is Donald Trump. Do you have a young woman that was in his room, his hotel room, late in the evening at her own will, who was seen dancing for the beauty contest, dancing with a big smile on her face? So you're endorsing Trump, essentially? I like Trump, yeah. Should be, should be president of the United States. Paid for by trusted leadership pack. This is what your candidate 
said about Mike Tyson. Trump said at a rally in Indianapolis, Mike Tyson endorsed me. I love it. He sent out a tweet. Mike, Iron Mike, is that the kind of endorsement that Donald Trump should be looking for? Well, the right answer is that, for one thing, Donald Trump would look like the world's biggest hypocrite if he ran away from a Tyson endorsement. Here he was three years ago praising Mike Tyson's Broadway show. He showed a life that a lot of people don't know. Growing up in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, a rough section, I know it very well, really rough. Going through hell, all of the problems he had with the wives and Don King and everybody else. And he really did an amazing job. Tyson and Trump have known each other and been business partners for 30 years. In this commercial from the early 1980s, Tyson references Trump's then-solvent casino. I'm happy to say that every time I go to Trump, uh, I win. But this isn't an issue of a politician staying on brand. Yeah, a normal politician would hem and haw when anyone with significant baggage like Mike Tyson endorses him. But I was just thinking about the reductivism of referring to Mike Tyson as convicted rapist, the endorsement of a convicted rapist. Yes, Mike Tyson's a convicted rapist. You know who else is? A number of the 200,000 Virginia felons who now have the right to vote, who Democrats are, to borrow a Ted Cruz verb, trumpeting as a moral advance in enfranchising the voiceless. Why do they call it progress when 200,000 convicted felons in Virginia 40,000 in Maryland get to vote, but not when this one specific felon expresses his particular vote. Is it that Mike Tyson is the exception? Is it that we know Mike Tyson's name? Well, if you want to go through the 200,000 felons in Virginia, you'll find people who did things just as bad as what Mike Tyson did. But when we call them the 200,000 felons, they just seem like undifferentiated, disenfranchised citizens, not people who've done specific horrible things. Some of them have. Now the Republicans of Virginia are going through specific instances of felons who have the right to vote and saying, this one's a murderer, this one's a rapist. And Democrats are calling that demagoguery. Aren't you doing that with Mike Tyson? I mean, maybe you're saying, okay, well, we believe that some of the 200,000, 40,000 in Maryland did do horrible things, but by and large, most of them didn't. They earned the right to vote again by doing their time. I'm not really hearing that argument. I'm hearing an argument more along the lines of paid their debt to society and over-incarceration. I understand that we have been lax in our society in taking sexual assault seriously, that we have under-prosecuted rapists, that we have too often put the burden on women. But that's not true in the case of Mike Tyson. He did his time. He served his sentence. And if you've ever said, paid his debt to society, he has. Why have that phrase? Why have that very idea if you can't apply it in the specific? Look, of course, Donald Trump is an ass. And I acknowledge, not only does he say, I want Mike Tyson's endorsement, he minimizes Mike Tyson's crime. He talks about this misogynistic nonsense about the victim later smiling. He's Donald Trump. But reducing Mike Tyson to, quote, convicted rapist isn't exactly the most forward-looking way to look at a whole person. I would not want Mike Tyson's endorsement either. The guy has a tattoo of Mao Zedong on his shoulder, for God's sake. And I don't want to minimize Mike Tyson's crimes. But either we continue to shame criminals or we don't, and we can't have it both ways. (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the Gist's producer. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Gist. Sometimes it's easy to go right into the silver. Sometimes you've got to ease in. Um, Peru de Peru. Do Peru. Thanks for listening. I know Bill Bradley was a senator, not a congressman, but did he ever play? Yeah, he did. And it was only a means to to hit up members on his 1986 tax law. Yeah. And he came down at the gym and was told, you know, there was a group, bipartisan group of guys who played. So I, I remember him playing only once. And I remember him coming up the court. We played full court. And, and, and the first thing he would do was look for an open man and pass the ball. And these passes were bouncing off guys because they'd never seen a pass before. <laughs> so, <laughs>